This is Laura Lummer, the Breast Cancer Recovery Coach. I'm a healthy lifestyle coach, a clinical Ayurveda specialist, a personal trainer, and I'm also a breast cancer survivor. In this podcast, we talk about healthy thinking and mindfulness practices, eating well, moving your body for health and longevity, and we'll also hear from other breast cancer survivors who have re-engaged with life and have incredible stories to share. This podcast is your go-to resource for getting back to life after breast cancer. Well, hello there. I am Laura Lummer, and you are listening to the Breast Cancer Recovery Coach Podcast. I thank you so much for joining today. If you're a repeat listener, thank you, thank you for keep coming back. And if you're brand new, welcome to the show. I hope you really enjoy it. Before we get into the show, I just want to touch on two quick things. One, I want to remind you all, if you are repeat listeners, you've heard this, but my website URL was updated, my website address, um, a couple of a month or so ago. So if you try to go to lauralummer.com, you might get a warning that it's not a secure site, but trust me, it is. It's just that the URL changed to thebreastcancerrecoverycoach.com. And for some reason, I have no idea why cyberspace does what it does, but you will get that warning if you try to go to lauralummer.com. But both lauralummer.com and the Breast Cancer Recovery Coach will get you to my website. So I just wanted to remind you of that. It's safe. I know I hate that when those warnings come up. And so I just wanted to be very transparent about that and let you know, don't be afraid. Don't worry. It's okay. Click through and then you'll never see that warning again. It's a one-time thing. Okay. And aside from that, I just want to say thank you again so much for the reviews and ratings that I continue to receive for the show from you. I not only appreciate you tuning in and listening, downloading, but I know it takes extra effort and time to go and leave a rating and review. And I I really, really appreciate it. It means the world to me. It makes it so much better for the show and easier for the show to be found by other people. So thank you for taking the time to do that and for the great feedback that you leave for the show. I'm so appreciative of it. And if you haven't had the time or made the time yet to leave a review or rating, it would be awesome if you could do that on the iTunes store or wherever you listen to the Breast Cancer Recovery Coach podcast. Okay, so let's jump into the show. At the time of this recording, we are coming up to the end of my five-day sugar challenge. And I have to tell you, it has been a really great experience. It's been a lot of fun. This challenge is all about taking a mindful approach to eating and drinking sugary foods. And contrary to what you might expect, we're not talking that much about food. Because food usually isn't the problem. The way you think about food and the way you react to your thoughts and urges and cravings is far more powerful than changing the food that you eat. Changing your mindset is the key to changing your food choices, not turning to willpower as so many people think. I wanted to talk about this today because I know that one of the biggest concerns after a diagnosis of breast cancer is what should I eat? We worry that what we eat will lead to a cancer recurrence, or we're hopeful that what we eat will support the prevention of a recurrence, and we're correct on both counts. Lifestyle habits are major contributors to cancer, and they include food, physical activity, stress reduction, smoking, alcohol consumption, body weight, and several other factors. The studies in this area have conflicting data. 
but even so, they show that lifestyle habits contribute to anywhere from 70 to 90% of cancer diagnoses. So when it comes to food, the jury is still out because the studies say that the correlation between overweight and cancer and specific foods and cancer make it difficult to determine which one is the biggest contributing factor. Is it the food or is it the excess body fat? But at the end of the day, they both play a role because obviously food contributes to being overweight. Now, before the sugar challenge began last week, I asked the women in the challenge what their biggest issue around sugary foods was. And I heard a lot about cravings, which is what inspired me to do this episode about a particular type of food that is very prevalent in our quote unquote Western diet. These foods are actually designed to make it more difficult for you to say no to them. They're created to make your brain want more of them. And by created, I mean that food manufacturers spend a lot of money and time researching what combinations of ingredients have the most powerful impact on the reward center of a consumer's brain. They work to develop the right colors, fragrances, and flavors that keep you coming back for more food. And this isn't just the packaged food in the grocery house. This includes fast foods from the big familiar chains that many of us wait in line for breakfast, lunch, and or dinner. So these foods are called hyperpalatable foods. And according to Tara Fazzino at the Coffrin Logan Center for Addiction Research and Treatment at the University of Kansas, a hyperpalatable food is one where the synergy between the components of the food such as fat, sodium, sugar, and carbohydrates, make that food tastier than it would otherwise be. So think of fast food french fries, burgers, and chicken sandwiches, or packaged cookies and brownies. And they don't really taste like the foods that you make at home, but they're so good, you feel like you can't stop eating them until they're gone. Then there are also foods we prepare at home and in restaurants in such a way that the combination of fats, salts, and sugar used in cooking them make them so good that you have to lay on the couch to recover from eating, right? What the heck? We eat to the point of physical discomfort. Why do we do that? Well, it isn't happening because you don't have any willpower. On the one hand, there's the abundance of hyperpalatable foods. And on the other, there's the way we've conditioned ourselves to eat, which is unconsciously for the most part, and often powerlessly, meaning that we say, I can't help myself. So we're going to dig into both of those issues today. Your amazing body, and it truly is a fantastic, intuitive, amazing creation, It has all kinds of mechanisms in place to maintain your heart rate, your temperature, to heal itself. And among many other things, your body rewards you with a flood of feel-good chemicals, one of them called dopamine, when you do something good. That's a reward system that says, yeah, that is good. Do it again. That was a good behavior because it felt good. It tasted good. It made me feel good. So even if you hate exercise, for example, you have to admit that when you get out and you get active, you'll catch yourself saying afterwards, oh, I'm glad I did that. I do feel good. 
And that's because when you exercise, you get a little burst of feel-good chemicals. And your brain says to you, "Mm mm-hmm, that's good. Keep doing that. I like that. It's good for us. Well, once you take a bite of food, you also set off all kinds of chemical reactions in your body and your brain. And these reactions are needed for proper digestion and to tell you if your body likes that food and when you've had enough of that food. The problem comes in when we choose to override our sensations of fullness, ignore the fact that we're not hungry and choose to eat anyway, and make the choices to eat hyperpalatable foods that cause a reaction in your body and makes your brain say, yes, more of that, please. So one of the mechanisms in your amazing body is called sensory-specific satiety. And that means that as you eat a food, it becomes a little less pleasing with each bite. This is a part of your body's intuitive way of saying, that's good, but that's also enough now. The interesting thing is that if you're eating one food and you think, okay, that's enough of that, then someone puts a new food in front of you, the first bite of that other new food will also be more pleasing than future bites of that food. Think about when you finish dinner and you're like, oh, I can't possibly eat another bite of that pasta, but I'll just take a taste of that tiramisu. And then you bite into the tiramisu and it's so delicious. So fill in the food that works for you, but you know what I'm saying, right? So we keep eating. What studies have found is that foods that have high combinations of fat, sugar, salt, or hyperpalatable foods, they seem to dull this mechanism of sensory-specific satiety. So it's not just a food that's high in fat or high in salt or high in sugar. It's foods that have a combination of more than one of these ingredients that makes them hyperpalatable. It's the combination. And when it dulls that mechanism, that means that even though you may feel satisfied by what you've eaten, you may continue to eat those foods because your brain keeps telling you this is good and it's giving you that dopamine reward. It's saying, yes, keep eating that. I like it. In a 2018 study published in the Journal of Cell Metabolism, what they found when the study participants' brains were scanned with functional MRIs was that foods that have a high combination of fat and carbohydrate compared to foods that are only high in fat or only high in carbohydrate, recruited more of the reward circuits in people's brains. And so people perceived these foods as being more valuable, meaning they were not only willing to eat more of them, they were willing to pay more money for those foods. So what foods are considered hyperpalatables? Well, in an incredible study, a 2019 study that was published in the journal Obesity, a team of researchers evaluated other studies to try to come up with a definition of hyperpalatable foods. So after they took all of these other studies, they cross-referenced, they did all the science stuff, they came up with three different categories that defined what a hyperpalatable food is. So one category was foods that were high in the combination of fat and sodium. These foods had a combination of 47% or higher in fat, 22% or higher in carbohydrate, and 10% or higher in sugars. 
This category is foods like pancakes, cookies, and butter popcorn. Then there was the fat sugar combination group, which includes foods that had 50% or more of their calories from fat, 14% or more from carbs, and 37% or more from sugar. This category was foods like pies, cakes, sweet cereals, and pretty much most desserts. The third category was the carbohydrate sodium category, and these foods had a combination of at least 23% fat, 57% carbohydrate, and 6% sugar. These are foods like pizza, pasta, cereals, and salty snack foods. So once they came up with these three categories, they applied them to nearly 500 foods that were found in the Food and Nutrient Database for Dietary Studies. So this is a database of nutrient values that's taken from another database called What We Eat in America. Now, I'm going to post the resource in the show notes for this episode to What We Eat in America because it's pretty, there's a lot to it. But to put it very simply, What We Eat in America is a database compiled from actual interviews with real people based on what they ate over a specific period of time. And so it's all collected and stored in this database of what we eat in America. So what this study found was that 81% of the items in this database met the criteria for hyperpalatable foods, mostly based on the way the foods were prepared, meaning that what was added to the food in the cooking or processing of the food caused it to be a hyperpalatable food. So have you ever eaten a food that was labeled low fat or low calorie and you couldn't believe how good it tasted? That's the best, right? You find this little gem of a food and you think, oh, dang, now I can eat as much as I want and be guilt-free because it's reduced calorie or low fat. Well, think again, because what the study found was that 80% of the 127 items they studied labeled as low fat or low calorie met the criteria for a hyperpalatable food. Okay, here's a side note here, a story of my own personal experience. There's a local restaurant to me, and it's a farm-to-table type of restaurant. And they have this dish called the Happy Vegan Salad. I love that salad. It's so delicious. The dressing is spot on, and it's served with these little ice cream scoop sizes of hummus and farro and tabbouleh. I love the salad, and I always felt so good eating it. You know, I'm making a healthy choice, but it's super delicious, and it's very satisfying. And then one day, I was going to go meet a friend there for lunch, and it was after they made restaurants post the calorie content for their foods. So I looked up that salad, mostly to make myself feel good about my choice, and I found that it had a whopping 1,200 calories I'm telling you, I was traumatized. I was shocked. That is a huge amount of calories for one meal. And it's a flipping vegan salad. I I was beside myself. Like, how could this be? Well, it's all the delicious fats and salts in the dressing and those tasty little topping scoops that made them so delicious. And I should have known better because my hummus never (laughs) never tastes that good, right? So back to the studies. I want to point out that all of the studies that were compared had to meet the criteria of being studied on humans and 
examining the palatability of Western foods. And that's important because it's common foods that real people reported eating. It wasn't animal studies or, you know, cross right when maybe a mouse responded like this, but what would a human do? So they were actually evaluating studies done on typical Western foods eaten by real human beings. So let's talk about the foods that did not meet the requirement for being hyperpalatables. And I'm sure you can probably guess. There were no fresh or raw fruits, meats or fish, unsalted nuts, heavy cream with nothing added to it, and 97% of vegetables were not considered to be hyperpalatable foods. Now there's a lot of debate over food addiction. Is it real? And if so, what's the definition of food addiction? And so on and so on. There's not a concrete definition or approach to food addiction at this point. But according to a study by the University of Michigan, where they examined quote-unquote addictive-like eating behaviors in more than 500 people, they found that more than 90% of the study participants had addictive-like eating behaviors towards at least some of the 35 foods they were exposed to. So addictive-like eating behaviors in this study meant that the participants felt like they couldn't control how much of the particular food they were eating, even if they wanted to stop. They just kept eating it. Now, I'm not going to list all the 35 foods here, but the link to that study is in the show notes that you can find at thebreastcancerrecoverycoach.com forward slash 93. But I do want to tell you the top five most addictive foods and the top five least addictive foods determined by that study. So let's start with the addictive ones. The scale these foods were rated on was from zero to seven, with seven being the most addictive. The number one most addictive food was pizza, coming in at a 4.01. Number two and three were tied at 3.73, and that was chocolate and chips. Number four at a 3.71 was cookies. And number five at a 3.68 was ice cream. And the top five least addictive foods, cucumbers, number one, with a 1.53 rating, Carrots came in number two at a 1.6. Beans, with no sauce on them, came in at a 1.63. Apples, 1.66. And brown rice, 1.74. So understanding the criteria for hyperpalatable foods and then hearing these two lists, I'm sure you're getting a pretty clear picture of the challenges around making healthy food choices. It's not easy because the companies that create these hyperpalatable foods design them to be irresistible. And let's be honest, at least some of them are delicious to most of us. And here's the thing. If you're used to eating hyperpalatable foods and you try to cut them out all at once and go straight to clean, natural versions of non-hyperpalatable foods, your brain loses its mind. It's like, what the hell are you doing? I mean, seriously, let's look at the contrast from the number one most palatable food, pizza, to the number one not most palatable food, cucumber. I mean, come on. There's a huge gap in between the deliciousness of those two foods. 
When did you ever unbutton your pants and sit back feeling like you were going to explode and say, oh my God, those cucumbers were so good. I ate way too much. Never. That never happens. Your brain is not going to give you the same dopamine hit that you get from hyper palatable foods. And eventually you're going to go on a binge. Now, that won't happen for everyone. There are those individuals who are the cold turkey people out there and more power to you. But there's a large body of behavior change science that shows most of us can't go cold turkey. So what can you do? Well, as I told the group in the sugar challenge, you have to start by taking back your power and recognizing that you are in charge of the choices you make around food. Mindful eating and changing habits begins with awareness. As in the salad story I shared with you, once I became aware of the calorie density in that salad, it's not as if I can never eat the salad again, but if I do, I plan my eating around it so that it fits into my lifestyle and my health goals. And that's another step and equally as important as being mindful. One of my favorite coaches is Corinne Crabtree. She specializes in weight loss and her fundamental tool is planning. In fact, anyone I know who has been successful with weight loss or who coaches weight loss teaches planning and how to stick to the plan. And how to stick to the plan is all about managing the way that you think. So knowing that you live in a world of hyperpalatable foods and hyperpalatable food preparation, to create and follow a healthy nutrition plan requires awareness, mindfulness, planning, and understanding how your thinking creates your habits. So that gives you a big chunk of behaviors to start looking at and working on. Now, if you missed the challenge this time and you're interested in joining the next one, so you can work on these areas and get the tools that support changing your eating habits, you can get on the wait list at thebreastcancerrecoverycoach.com forward slash sugar challenge. Until that time, if you want support in getting back to life after breast cancer, come and join the free Breast Cancer Recovery Group on Facebook. In that group, you'll find hundreds of other survivors who get what you're going through and are happy to support you. So it was interesting because I was listening to a podcast from one of my coaches just yesterday, actually, and the podcast was talking about how women are so hard on each other and how so often we tear each other down rather than support and build each other up. And it made me think how fortunate I am to have the Breast Cancer Recovery Group and all of my groups, my Revivify group, my Empower group, and all the women who participated in the Sugar Challenge because they're all so positive, encouraging, and supportive of each other. That is what I design my groups to be like. We're not here to tear each other down. We're here to support each other, understand our challenges, and help each other move forward in life. And so listening to this podcast of a woman who coaches thousands of people and her experience and feedback on how often that women are just mean to each other made me so much more grateful for the incredible support and 
seriously the never a mean comment that I see in our groups. And if I did, honestly, I would block that person. So you got to be nice. There's let's be kind. So I encourage you to join that group because it is wonderful. And there are just hundreds of wonderful women in it. So again, you can find that the breast cancer recovery group by searching on Facebook. And I'll also put a link to that group in the show notes for this episode. So thank you for listening. I hope that that gives you a little more awareness about food and hopefully gives you a little insight and encouragement on how you can take control of your food and begin approaching it differently, looking at your foods differently, and consuming foods more carefully so that the food works for you, that the food supports your health, your healing, and your lifestyle. And not that you feel controlled and as if food has more power over you. All right, that's it for now, ladies. And I will see you next week. Until then, be good to yourself and be good to each other. You've put your courage to the test, laid all your doubts to rest. Your mind is clearer than before, your heart is full and wanting more, your future's at the door. Give it all you got, no hesitating, you've been waiting. This is your moment